So we're settling in to this particular period of Dhamma practice, Dhamma cultivation, which uh, you can call it a retreat. It's not quite what one would imagine retreat would be, perhaps, in uh, you go to a retreat centre where you've got a management and then everybody else is just uh, sitting and walking and it's quiet and there's a, a kind of um, situation where it's much more interactive. Everybody's kind of managing and everybody's kind of retreating. <laughs> and, uh, buildings and cooking and washing up and things happening, you know, things breaking down, things needed to be repaired, cleaned, everybody's part of that. Mm. So it's a much broader uh, culture we're encouraging. There are times when one is uh, encouraged to sit still, quiet, focus on the body, breathing, simple meditation systems, to establish a core foundation which the general standard, recommended standard is mindfulness of body it's very direct, it's non-conceptual, gets you here, gets you, gets you grounded, gets you here, out of the proliferations and uh, speculations, as much as, you know, and then we just keep coming back to that time and time again. And uh, it's both challenging because it's constrained, constraint to stay within that. There's also the idea is to build up this uh, strength and resolution. To just keep coming back to that. And circumstances external and internal wash over. We're holding this central core presence, stability. Noticing one's reactions, responses in a very open, interested way. Non-critical, non-final. Not I am this, I am that. Not I can be this, I should be that. But just this is this now. It's the movements. You know, stirred, delighted, confused, doubting, uh, irritated. Uh, released moments of release and then rolls on seemingly in a very mundane situation just sweeping the paths what's this got to do with meditation cleaning the drains what's this going to meditation seeing these kind of things fixing your robes when they get torn Oh, I want to do some more meditation. Why do I have to do this? You know, this sort of, you know, noticing this. How one compartmentalizes practice, compartmentalizes Dhamma. So that which is supposed to be a foundation, you know, just being in your body, becomes something we say oh, it only happens in the Dhamma hall. Or whenever it's quiet. Mm. Which is certainly the the nursery, the yeah. But then hold, holding that when the movements occur, movements of mind occur, and actually some people find it's easy to be in the body when they are moving, and moving around walking, 
not walking meditation or just even walking, feeling somehow that that more mobile form gives them a sense of stability. Because the stability we're developing is not purely a stability of posture, although that's important or useful, but a stability of presence. Presence is different, it's energetic. It's not, when I say energetic, I don't mean it's busy energetic, it's just a sense of, you know, something that's alive, a living presence. Vitality, aliveness, that which bodies have, which is the ability to sense, refer inwardly to to the central aspect, like, okay, how's that affecting me? And then how to respond. But the me, in this sense, is not the person which we might normally refer to, but the embodied presence. Right? So, worldly life, you know, I'm not saying lay life, I'm saying any worldly stuff, we tend to make the central presence me, my attitudes, my habits, my interests, my concerns, my ways of doing things. That's how it's formed. That's called the person. It's a series of learnt responses, sometimes reflexes, knee-jerk reflexes, responses, reactions, familiar attitudes, ways of doing things. And the person in their life, as they grow up from being a little top, develops lots of these. So they feel they've got a full set to manage what life will bring up. Uh, but it's never adequate mm. because it loses receptivity. We get so full of ourselves that we are not open anymore. We're so full of our own ways of seeing things and doing things and responding and reacting, and some of them are not necessarily bad. But we're already loaded. And so the openness, the emptiness, the receptivity gets impaired by all the inner strategies and, you know, attitudes that have been developed in order to manage life. And this kind of conglomerate of Attitudes, memories, perceptions, responses becomes me, myself. And that's what, when something happens, that's what gets referred to. Hmm? Now, when we're trying to cultivate, and not self, sometimes people get mystified by, well, what is it that's not self? If there's nobody here, what, 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 what? What gets enlightened or what? The jitta. Well, whose jitta is that? It's your jitta. But who's the you? It's jitta's jitta. <laughs> it's like when you walk around outside, the rain's raining. Is it your rain? When it touches you, it's your rain because it's landing on you. You could say it's British rain, but it, that's not exactly true either. Yeah, so you say it's just raining. So similarly, when you get these responses, it's not mine as such, it's just these are responses, these are reactions, this is the knowing of them. And we take this unnecessary uh, intermediary called myself, and just put that to one side, because that, that keeps complicating matters. You know, so when you generate this sense of self, you want to make that the most reliable thing because that becomes the central axis which we refer everything to. You want to make that self really solid, reliable, intelligent, good, and so forth. 
but it's actually it's it's um, an immigrant, <laughs> and what the average untrained person doesn't realise, how could they, is that actually there's a lot of intelligence and responsiveness when you begin to release that, that there's a natural responsiveness, centeredness, intelligence that's innate. You don't you don't have to build all these strategies around it. So you get a chitta which is open, steady, resolute, kindly, has all these qualities that we would say as they manifest in a person, oh, she's a, he's a really well-developed person, he's a really good man, you know, whatever. Because they've released a lot of their self. And anyone who's fully developed in this way has released a lot of them, their personal <laughs> angles, that's what makes them so delightful because they've got room for you. They're not full of, you should be this, and I want this, and you know, they're not measuring, it's open. And that's what makes it so uh, enjoyable and so inspiring when you meet people who've cleared the self out of the chitta. You know, like Lumpur Cha. We are, is a day of his uh, recollection. And, you know, refer to this Lumpur Cha as best I can as an example. And the results of that, and the, you know, of that person or that training. Hmm. But for us, we have to keep remembering it's not a matter of trying to, you know, make my person be like that person, but <laughs> have faith in the Dharma. You're clearing, you know, all his personal views, opinions, understanding them, contemplating them, and releasing them. You just have a lot more space a lot more stability, a lot more openness, a lot less suffering. And that's a joy and a delight. And it's also um, a great uh, support for other people because it's very human. When I say human, I mean it's like you can walk around it. It's not just realised, it's also actualised. So realization can be get a oh, wow, great, great insight. Actualizing it means you you walk around, acting from the basis of that insight. You respond to people. You do things based upon that insight. That's actualization. You come into the, what we call the conventional, conditioned realities, with a different angle, and a different dexterity, and different attitudes. Yeah then people see, hey, that's interesting. She doesn't do that. He does this. Ah. They're not, you know, they're not into gaining and owning and controlling and having and becoming and presenting themselves and making something and getting irritated and jumping up and down and <laughs> something very stable and, and, and enjoyable and open. And this is certainly one way you would, you'd recognize pretty immediately with Lumpur Cha. Very, very stable, but not fixed. Because the stability is this stability, like, you know, the, I call it, inner presence. and the stability of wisdom. Hmm? So we might say when we, we meditate, you know, you have the coarse body, and the gross physicality with sensations in it. Would you sense that? As you sit with that, 
That gives you a frame of reference, then you contemplate what's alive within this, what's the what's the living qualities within that. You come into the the dynamic or the energetic domain, which is warm or fluid or constricted, and you begin to practice with that. So breathing through it, releasing it, opening it, steadying it, till that quality becomes uh comfortable and you get what's called a subtle body energetic body Hmm? and this is where you can really read the roots of your mental behavior the flutterings the compression the pushing the resisting you can read it in that in that domain you can sense it and that's where you can release it without having to give yourself a lecture or think about it or can conjure up a strategy. Because once you come into the energetic domain, right, then a lot of the, a lot of the, not all of them, but one aspect of the personality strategies, which are called self-view, sakaya ditti, they, they can't get going. Because the sakaya ditti always works in terms of I am this, I should be this, stop doing that, become this, don't do that, behave. It's always a third person in your head telling you what to do. <laughs> and telling other, other, how other people should be. So you've got this kind of thing going on, which you take for granted, as that's me. It's like a form of minor madness. Because <laughs> what's happened is that the fundamental energetic system, something is split off from it and starts judging the rest of it. You know, how can you be aware of something, you could call it in your head, talking about you? Who's that? You're aware of it, so that's one thing. This other thing is saying what you should be. And that's referring to something else. So there's a whole crowd of, of personal fragments. And this is kind of the average madness of a, of a normal person. If you come to the energetic domain, you recognize that very fragmentation into I am, I should be, I can't, I wasn't. And is that is, is already, that's already, a, it's just... You know, forming a person out of this is already a, a compulsive energy, and maybe you don't. Maybe that system doesn't need to do it. Maybe that system doesn't need to do all this stuff of creating somebody. Yeah, I mean, I'm still being much too intellectual about it because it's more like an emotional reflex to. Jump into jumping, make make my make my get it right. Don't do don't be this. What they you know that kind of is emotional reaction uh, to generate to get something in control of life. Which yeah, it's an issue. And like any of these reflexes, it's the best thing that we can do, as long as our mind is shadowed by ignorance our reflexes and reactions, that's the best we can do. There's no point blaming yourself for it. That creates more turmoil. But to acknowledge these reflexes and reactions, and how's that feel? In your inner body, you feel it's jumping and tensing and twitching and floundering. Wait a minute, just steady that release that, open around that. And maybe this other stuff isn't needed. Perhaps in this there is security, stability, warm-heartedness, a place to be. I don't need to generate a person to do it for me. Yeah. And you can kind of create a culture around 
you know, many of these sort of very humble personal problems. You know, I've got a real doubt about what I should do. You know, should I go here? Should I be this? Should I be that? What am I supposed to do? This sounds right, but on the other hand, it could be that way. But some people feel that's better. But I don't know about that. If I could really manage that, maybe I could do it for a day. But and what does he think? But I don't know. Do I really believe in them anyway? Anything? What's going on? You get this kind of credible busyness of doubt and you come to the, the root quality of the, the mind searching for security and, and comfort I mean this is not a small issue and say but this doubting is not going to get you there if you come into that inner quality of your embodiment and it's very steady and loving and spacious and just you know you're not going to get an answer that satisfies you from your personal realm but you can release the doubt and feel maybe life is uncertain ambiguous maybe it does have elements that challenge me and I don't really enjoy it maybe that's it and instead of doing, you know, running around, I just press it's best just to stay steady, stable, and handle it, <laughs> and meet it. Yeah. So this is the Dhamma strategy. Well, okay, this, that's my way of looking at it. That's what I try to do. Yeah. I can sense my frustrations or exasperations or disappointments or worries and okay and then it gets in it ends here and the more that one cultivates that the less my experience is the less grip those reflexes have because something in you beyond your thinking mind beyond your Self, something in you begins to know. Just don't bother. Just stay here and release the dukkha right here. Dukkha takes many forms. Anguish, impotence. I want to make somebody better. I really, she's suffering. I want to make her not suffer. You're suffering. You can't resolve your own suffering, how can you resolve anybody else's? <laughs> you know? I guess. Hmm. You know, the impotence one experiences, wanting things to be cheerful, bright, more harmonious, more something or the other. Or, yeah, I can be with that, I can know that. But. How does that happen if I'm getting stressed out, agitated, impatient? That's not going to help. Me flapping my arms around isn't going to do anybody any good. Yes. Resolve the dukkha internally. You've got a lot better chance of resolving the dukkha externally. That's the way you work. You take refuge in Dhamma and see what it can bring forth. And it's always going to be you know, it's just one problem, one enigma, one unresolved thing after the next goes on. The conditioned realm doesn't get resolved. But we no longer feel so frustrated by it, exasperated by it, disappointed by it, depressed by it. Then you can be with it. There's many ways in which you can contemplate this dukkha and you think, you know, people aren't, monks aren't quiet enough, or so and so is not turning up to do the washing up on time, and we don't have enough cabbages in the lard, or why does this person not put soya sauce on the condiments tray? 
How can anybody be so stupid as to not put soya sauce on the condiments tray? You can't eat without soya sauce on the condiments tray. How can people who come here to support us be so stupid as to not put soya There's plenty of ways which you can contemplate. It is very mundane, humble, rather disappointing <laughs> how petty one could get. Okay, just witness that. Be with that. Mm, there it is. Mm. And that's part of the humanity, of the humility of it, is just seeing how this kind of wonderful vistas of the deathless, nibbana, detachment, ultimate truth, when it boils down to it, they left the mustard off the tray. <laughs> I didn't make enough, the food's not tasty enough or something like that, or somebody didn't turn up for the washing up on time. You can get yourself in a state over that. Fine, that's good. That's practice too. Because it's the same, what you're witnessing is the same scenario. You know, You've got to think this is the way it should be. System. Right. That's it. It's very obvious. <laughs> you can only build your world on that and then it doesn't quite happen. Then when you feel this sense of disorientation, disappointment. And that's kind of the that's the that's the grindstone of practice. And why it becomes a culture. Dhamma culture, which sitting still in meditation is definitely an asset, but by no means the end of the story, or not necessarily even getting to the heart of the story. Because, you know, as we might recognize, the uh, drawback is that when you're attending, in silence, your attention is held by that form, yeah, which is has its great values. What happens when you have to release the form? Oh, not meditate. Then you actually haven't cultivated in a more open, fluid way. So you want to keep a sense of this. All a dhamma culture. Getting sick is a dhamma practice. Looking after other people who are sick is a dhamma practice. You know, fixing broken tools is a dhamma practice. You know, being careful you don't break them is a dhamma practice. <laughs> Telling everybody else they shouldn't break tools and then breaking one yourself is a dhamma practice. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> you know? Okay, more breathing out, humbling, <laughs> yeah. working with it. Mm. Other people not being mindful is a dumber practice. Starting to get judgmental about other people not being mindful. Watching, there's that again. You know, we try to colonize the experience with our standards, expectations, and so forth. And then just withdrawing from that, letting go. Now this central foundation of, of the culture, the resolution, the embodiment, so, like, uh, you know, this is a, it's called a Dutanga tradition or Kamatana. Kamatana, foundation on direct action, what we're doing, not theory. And uh, as we look at life of Lumpur Cha, his early life as a monk, trying to find a way, and often village monasteries, the standards of, they're not really aiming for Nibbana, they're just, it's a function in the community to be part of the village and servicing the needs of the villagers to counsel, to advise, to um, even educate their children and so on. 
Uh, and then, oh, what about Nibbana? What about that? And then, oh, that's way beyond what people can realize these days. You know, now which just is the dark age. Nobody can realize this. And he thought, well, I can try, you know. And so how did the Buddha do it? And just working like that. And so his first few years is just doing a lot of... Uh, looking into the training rules in the most um, these commentaries which are quite refined protocols and commentaries on training rules so he's learning all this studying it trying to get you know close as he could to a very high standard of sila and then also just a lot of um, you know body stuff which means you know, living out in the wilds, going too long for years, walking, you've got to be in your body, you know, sitting, you've got to be in a body, you've got to deal with bodily discomfort, deal with bodily pain, look after a body, know how to get through when your food's not there, and developing that kind of tremendous uh, resilience and resolve that... uh, Lopochar is renowned for a huge amount of resilience that he maintained in his practice from then on. Somebody really gave everything to that foundation, being in the body, handling it, working with cold and various diseases, malaria. It's not a a sniffle, malaria is pretty ghastly. having all his teeth pulled out so he wouldn't have to bother about toothache. I mean, this is serious commitment. <laughs> Which few of us could probably match, I would imagine. Uh, so that was his kind of foundation, but... Mm-hmm. Similarly, our foundation here, in a strange way, the monasteries here started off very very basic uh, Chittas monastery no heat oh there's one one open fire in the reception room the reception room in the house was the only room that we could meet in we do the pujas there we have the um, meetings there we'd have the breakfast there because it had a floor <laughs> which is considered pretty good. You've got a complete floor because the rest of them didn't have reliable floors. They had floors with massive holes in them or floors that were made out of biscuit falling away. So this one had a floor, so it was considered really good. It had a floor. <laughs> and there was the chestnut fire in the fireplace, which would, if you sat next to it, burn your skin one side and the other side of your froze because most of the heat went up the chimney. and uh, So that was that, and then there was no uh, hot water. Then we rigged up a, a simple um, immersion heater in what's the downstairs of the, what's now the monk's nursing cootie, which is only a, a third of the size. We didn't have that building. We had something much simpler, and then we'd take it, maybe a men's night and a women's night, showers the rest of it is just cold and it was always cold winter time long winter dark cold damp you know and you just have to, it's not like a sudden immersion into cold water which you in there for a half a minute or a minute or two minutes you're actually there you wake up cold you get up cold everything's damp your clothes are damp you look around, the walls are damp. There'll be water running down the wall from the cooking in the kitchen would generate heat. That would hit the walls, all the heat would then condense. You have this stream of water running down the walls from the cold walls, and then they go mouldy. <laughs> it was sort of damp and cold. So you just had to do 
physical work, you know, as a way of just kind of keeping warm and doing stuff. And you just kind of get through it. Uh, the nuns particularly had a really tough time because they had to go down in the cottage and they've come up the lane in the dark, cold rain, it's got bundles of white would come up the materialise out of the gloom. These great white bundles would materialise, they start doing things. They had to go shoot down to the cottage again, do their chores there. They come up for the morning puja, go down, do the chores in the cottage and come up again. <laughs> up and down the lane in the rain and dark. And you know. So they were going up and down. Yeah. And some of us because there was not much room in the house, floors were falling apart. So we'd be three or four in a room with buckets to catch the water coming through the roof. And some of us just decided we'd, we'd just have these simple benders, which were like a canvas awning draped over some hazel rods. And you sleep outside. And just bundle up, didn't make much difference anyway, outside or inside, it's the same. So is that, you just get this kind of sense of just working through it. And then what you really needed was um, just warm-hearted presence. Even it wasn't that refined, just kind of human beings become a resource. You know, they're, they're the same cranky old creatures that we always are. But you learn to get together just because it's a heartwarming refuge when the rest of the world seems so difficult. And that's how, kind of, that's the logic, in a way, of, of, uh, of community, is to develop this you know, cooperative, warm-hearted quality whereby, yeah, we're all strange and don't agree, but that doesn't have to be a big issue. Just get on, cooperate, and put aside the differences. And, you know, and get a sense of a unified resolve. So it's very helpful. Because mm. you realise you don't have to agree with everybody all the time to, you know, you can still, okay, well, let's just do it. Same thing at Amarwadi. Same thing at Harnham. I went up there, break from Chittas. That was even colder. <laughs> <laughs> the snow came through the walls. We had to knock the plaster off the walls to put new mortar in. So the walls, the stone walls, had gaps between the stones and the wind would blow snow into the room through the wall. And the door didn't actually meet the floor, so the snow would come in under the door. And one of the toilet windows didn't have any glass in it, so the snow would come into the toilet. You'd have to sweep the snow off the toilet to use it. That was freezing cold. And uh, uh, we had this wood-burning stove, which didn't work. So we used to sit around this wood-burning stove, imagining it would work, and say, oh, it's really toasty and warm in here, isn't it? (laughs) We just cluster around this stove. (laughs) And you just got to be together, you know, because it's only the human company that resists can help you to resist that. Even though you're bodily resisting it, you realise actually, yeah, you develop the body resilience, but the body resilience depends upon having spiritual willingness. Yeah, and that depends upon mutual support and company. Yeah. So then the human being becomes a resource of the heart. The heart then fills the body and supports the body to maintain the practice and to maintain one's um, dhamma abiding. And that's the way the whole thing works. The body, the heart, human beings, mixing it together, you form a kind of a foundation which is not myself. Um, Not myself. We came to Amrabadi, that was cold too. 
because it was this, uh, they bought this old school which was run on government money and that, and that when they built the thing as a kind of a refugee school for children who were being taken out of cities during the war so they wouldn't get bombed. So they built this residential school for kids. But it was all just wooden buildings with no insulation. But in those days, oil was peanuts. So they had pipes running under the soil, massive oil boilers sending hot water through the site. We couldn't afford that. They switched it off. No heat. Uh, managed to insulate the sala of the main building. Insulation. But the residences, no insulation. And it was the coldest winter in Britain in many years. It was 10 degrees below inside. Inside your room. Inside the Vihara was 10 degrees below. Zero. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> I thought, this is the third monastery I've helped to establish. I don't think I want another one. Because <laughs> it was like, not just a day, not just a day, but it was weeks. Weeks of freezing cold. And you just go, jump in your sleeping bag, all your clothes on, take your boots off. The rest of it stays on. Get into your sleeping bag and in the morning. Bell rings. So it's a kind of clang, 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 clang. Get everybody up. And just rush up, get out of bed. And you could throw some cold water over your face and then run to the sala where there was at least some insulation. If you've got enough human bodies in there, it raised the temperature a bit. So we don't sit in there uh, to stay warm get some warmth going and that went on for months but the beauty of one of the beauties of those of that physicality is your mind it eventually it, it, it sees no point in complaining there's nothing whatsoever you cannot negotiate with the elements you can't complain about the cold and make it go away <laughs> you can't blame it you can't say it's not fair, the cold doesn't care. So eventually the mind just quiets, stops. And just and you begin to sense this is uncomfortable, unpleasant, but it's not suffering. It's uncomfortable, unpleasant, disagreeable, but it's not suffering. That's it, you know. And there you see, there's, there's exactly the, very simply speaking, there's an example of the way out of suffering. There's the, you know, the physical feeling and unpleasant. And you get that model. Uh, and certainly... Um, what Papa, poor John, in the early days, extremely tough because there was no monastery, there was a forest. And he had a tree, he sat down at the root of this tree, and they put his grot there, his Moscow net, net umbrella. And then the villagers, I think, built some kind of very simple kuti. And there he was. And then other people who wanted to be there gathered round, gradually this few little simple cooties got built. And it was very tough because there was very little food. It's quite a poor area, so the villagers didn't have much to offer, maybe a bit of rice. But, um, you know, but the, uh, the simplicity of that and uh, something you knows, you know, it's like this. And it's not pleasant. It's not agreeable. But you can stop suffering around it. You can stop agitating because you can hold your body, hold yourself steady, and you get the encouragement because that's what other people are doing. 
you get the heart, when the body's held steady, the heart opens, and then you receive the presence of others in, a, in an impersonal and yet intimate way. You know, he's holding his stuff, she's holding her stuff, they're maintaining clarity, they're staying steady. You pick up that energy, and you, then you're like, yeah, I can do it. This can happen. I can be with what I don't like. That's such a simple statement. But that's that's exactly where the transcendence occurs. When things get more comfortable, when you're less challenged physically, as happens, can you maintain that same model? You know? People's faults and failures, um, things breaking down, people forgetting what time of day it is, clocks not work, you know. Can we maintain that same template? This is the big challenge. Uh, for everywhere. Because monasteries eventually start to get established, people give support, they get more solid, you know, everything better functioning, uh, food isn't scarce, adequate robes. And then, of course, we can start bickering. <laughs> and who's got power, and who's in control, and who's getting what they want, and why does he get what, you know? We get these kind of human uh, stuff going on. Because now we're no longer under the grip. And uh, when you're no longer under that kind of grip, then you've got some room. <laughs> and then, you know, if you don't hold it, create your own. That's the challenge. When it gets more comfortable, can you maintain that same sort of resilience and solidity? Or do you use that? to just proliferate into it and start getting irritable or fantasizing or you're creating you know, the mind going to un- unwholesome habits. It wouldn't have done when it was under that pressure of physical duress. It's got no room. Now you've got room, what are you going to do with that room? Oh, Lumpur Chah seems to me, from what I knew of him, which wasn't that much, but it was pretty evident, by all accounts, he spent a huge amount of time just being with people as a practice. Maintaining that sense of resolute uh, presence, composure, clarity and dhamma compassion in the presence of others who I imagine must have been just every kind of person and people in various states of distress distraction, defilement opinions and so forth, just maintaining that so meeting the human conundrum as a practice maintaining composure clarity and refinement of conduct in the turbulence and the provocative domain of human interaction where people are challenging or they're irritating or you know the person I've told I've told them this seven times already and they keep asking the same <laughs> come back next week with the same question <laughs> and not getting impatient. You know, the things that, that happen for us. Why doesn't he get it? Uh-huh. New moment, practice. New moment, practice. Let go of the exasperation. Mm. And uh, he, he said he felt that his early years of Tudong, however, 
immensely foundational and strengthening they were, were actually almost like a prelude to a greater flowering of wisdom and compassion, much richer, fuller uh, fruition, which occurred as he took on the responsibility of being a teacher, a presence, a reference, a focus for many people. And he would do that six, seven hours a day, at least, straight off. Just sit there under his cootie, meet people all day. There's just people coming in constantly. Yeah. They say he managed to even retain his urination, hold it back, so he could just be with people. I think it must have damaged his health. But from what I saw of him, even when he was in England, uh, he just went going. You know, he'd start at six in the evening, people would come for questions and answers. Eight o'clock, still there. Nine o'clock, still there. Ten o'clock, still there. People are peeling off, flaking out. The translators are exhausted. He's still, he's still going. <laughs> Midnight. <laughs> Paul, please, go and take a rest. And he's going, I don't need a rest, it's you who want a rest. <laughs> I have to kind of plead with him to go get some rest. And that's when he was ill. <laughs> he had this thinking and this problem with his um, water on the brain. So he's getting dizzy spells. This was him when he wasn't that well. It was like six, seven hours solid Q&A sessions. And just it was it was also just an incredible presentation because you know he can't speak English, and yet he looked more at home in that place than than the local people. You know, when he arrived at Heathrow Airport, he looked more at home than the people who lived there. It's totally at home because he was in his embodiment where he always lived. World changed around him. He was in that, comfortable in that, fluent in that, confident in that, open in that. He didn't have language. He didn't have strategies apart from his practice. And he'd just meet people. And with the questions and answers, he'd listen to the question and you could almost see this question being translated and it would go in you think, what's he going to say? And he came up with something, and you realize he was getting to the person behind the question. You know, somebody asking him some complicated question about Abhidhamma, and he's saying, well, you know, thinking too much is not good for you. Or something like that. There's always there's a certain wit, humor, but also love, really trying to get behind the question to to the stressing or the anxiety or the worry or the sadness in the person and just reach that. Reach that. Reach that. You know? I never saw him rebuff anybody. I saw him tease people who, who seemed a bit too full of themselves, you know, come with some big flowery dumb estate when he teased them, you know. But meeting people, meeting people not in their personal strategies, but behind their personal strategies, meeting them in their anxiety, their self-consciousness, their need, meeting them there. And doing it, because he, he knew he didn't need English language, he knew the heart, and he could sense it and relate to it. That was a, a really pretty amazing, because I always thought you had to have a lot of, lot of verbiage to answer a question. They didn't need much. And when you 
consider this and contemplate this yourself, you realize if you, you're getting your minds getting a lot of words and questions in it, and you're trying to find the answers through that, a little tip I'd say is the answer, the real answer, is generally one word. The, the language of the heart has one word. The language of the head has a whole dictionary of words in it. The language of the heart has one word in it. What that word will be, I don't know. But you knew what your head is saying, oh, relax. Or be with it. Or that's how it is. Just very immediate, simple, that diffuses the complexity of the thinking mind as it spins out. And you get straight to the point. This is the point where suffering is. You only need one word to touch it. Yeah. Could be patience. Bear with it. Yeah. 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 And Sometimes that even just listening to the voice, his voice was like a song, because you know Thai is very tonal, so you get these ups and downs, but also it would swell, and, and there would be a little chuckle in it, chuckling and swelling and moving, and you know, he's obviously kind of like using his voice as a as a as like a heart massage, because you pick up the tonalities of the voice and the warmth and the encouragement and the vigour what the words are you don't really have to know because you get the warmth, the encouragement, the vigour and, and the uh, the presence a person's bringing themselves right towards you like your favourite uncle was what the image that so often came up but he could play it different ways you know, depending what's needed. Yeah, you know, we can certainly have enormous respect and uh, admiration and gratitude because Lumpocha said the human being is, you know, that's what we're looking at. That's what that's that's where it is. The human being somehow in their ordinariness <laughs> in their ordinariness within the ordinariness of something extraordinary which is the ability to not be moved, wavered, shaken by circumstance and that's both you know, inspiring to see that composure clarity, unwavering quality, it's also Enticing because, in some ways, this is just a human being. You know, noble child is just a kind of small, you could say, physically kind of insignificant human being. You know, doing ordinary things, you know? and yet within that, this beauty. And, and clarity. Uh, so the, the kind of personal factors of the body, they can remain, but they're no longer adhered to. Mm. So I hope this gives some encouragement, because it's not exactly, a, it's not a technique, but it's an encouragement for persistence and, and coherence of practice, and also keep bearing in mind the view this is a culture you know a Dhamma culture uh, which includes other human beings the responses to them, our reactions to them, our favouring and our personal dilemmas it includes all of that is, is grist for the mill and when that is clarified and worked upon we present something that is also inviting to other human beings. 
And this is really how the Dhamma and the Sangha persist through time, through this. So let's take some opportunities for direct practice.